Well, now, good and gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together in this place be found pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Maya Angelou always said that she was amazed when people would walk up and tell her they were Christians. Uh, She said her first response to them was always the question, already? And by that she meant that a lifelong endeavor uh, of becoming like Christ really is a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong venture of learning and growing, falling, getting up again, changing. We never stop becoming Christian But we do have to start someplace. I've been thinking this week about my own beginning with Christ. I've shared with you here before that I was nine when I made my profession of faith. One night in 1969, I knelt alone by my parents' bed and prayed a child's prayer of faith. And after confessing all the sins I could think of and asking Jesus to come into my life, I got off my knees and I went into the living room to share with my family the happy news of my salvation. Dad was on a tour of duty in Vietnam with the Air Force, but my mother and my grandmothers were there watching a TV show. They turned the volume down as I, when, when I asked them to, uh, but, but all of a sudden, standing there in front of them, I felt self-conscious and a little shy and just managed to murmur, well, I guess I'm saved. And they celebrated with me for a moment, and then they cranked the TV back up, and that was it. My conversion is forever linked with the theme song from Mission Impossible. <laughs> A person can begin with Christ in all kinds of ways. Some people take quite a while, actually, to consider faith, evaluate it, mull it over, weigh the implications, until finally they decide, this is who I am, this is what I want. And so they begin a journey of relationship with Christ. Other people's experience is a little more dramatic. It's as if God is grabbing them by the lapels. It's a tectonic shift. All at once, everything is different. And then there are folk like me, who, as children, happened to be surrounded by loving adults who told us the stories and sang us the songs and pointed us toward Jesus until one day it just dawned on us that we were already on a journey with Christ And then we found our way of claiming that personally and publicly. There are many ways to begin, and it's essential to keep becoming. But there needs to be a beginning if there is to be a becoming, right? Well, with that in mind, we're in the middle of a summer series of messages from the New Testament book of Acts. And today and next week... We're going to look at one man's beginning with Christ, uh, as described in Acts chapter 9. It's someone who plays a a leading and central role in the New Testament. Friends, I want you to to meet Paul. At least that's his Roman name. He also had a Jewish name, Saul. Uh, But through most of the New Testament, he's called Paul. We know him that way. 
And so very many things could be said about him. Brilliant mind, rock-solid convictions. He's disciplined. He's committed. With all of his heart and soul and mind, he has said yes to God. Or so he thinks. As a Pharisee, he's a meticulous Bible student. He keeps the commandments to the letter, sets apart time three times a day to pray, and twice a week he fasts, goes without food. All his life, he's worshipped and studied and tithed and performed good deeds. Paul is committed to thinking right and doing right and being right. Of course, like so many people who are obsessed with getting it right, Saul has a lot of anger inside of him. Often the two go hand in hand. And when we have that kind of rage inside of us, eventually we have to let it out. We end up directing it at other people. Sometimes we direct it at ourselves. Paul's rage was directed especially at a group of fellow Jews who were saying that a Galilean man named Jesus was God's own Messiah and had risen from the dead. A convicted criminal who clearly didn't believe the Bible because he didn't keep all of its commands, but still they were calling him the son of God. And these religious nuts were telling everybody and their movement was growing and this infuriated Saul. And so when the religious leaders finally kill the first one, a young Christ follower named Stephen, whose preaching so angers them that they stone him to death right then and there, as they execute him, there is Saul encouraging them on. And from that moment, it becomes his mission from God, he believes, to do away with this movement that he perceives as a dangerous threat to the faith. Willie Jennings, professor of systematic theology and African studies at Yale Divinity School and a Baptist minister, said this. He said, no one is more dangerous than one with the power to take life and who already has mind and sight set on those who represent a threat to the future. The truth is Saul and people like him everywhere today are actually in church. They're everywhere, even in church and maybe especially in church. Churches are full of people like Saul who want to do right. With all our hearts, we want to do right. And we think we're doing right, but for a great many, there is this rage seething just below the surface of our living, and it's anything but right. Saul, though, happens to be wrestling with an issue deeper than than his anger, deeper than his obsession with being right. And if we're honest, we'll admit that this is an issue that most of us are dealing with as well, and, and it's this. Saul is accustomed to looking at his world through a set of assumptions so cemented and fixed That when something comes along that doesn't fit those assumptions, it can only be perceived as a threat that must be dealt with as he dealt with the Christians. I think this is how a great many of, a great many people live and maybe even some of us wrapped up in a system of certainty so tight 
God could not wedge in a new thought with a shoehorn. Barbara Brown Taylor says the problem is that many of the people who need saving are in the churches. And at least part of what they need saving from is the idea that God sees the world the same way they do. I'm sure it's probably dawned on you, some of you at least this morning, uh, that this is what these little boxes are for. This is what they represent today, all our attempts to limit God to the size of our assumptions. We all have a God-sized box of some kind. Some are smaller than others. But as one iconic Baptist preacher, Carlisle Marney, once observed, God is a wild Mustang, kicking the slats out of every man-made corral and running off into the world. I love that. Paul assumed he knew enough. He assumed he knew enough about God and the Bible, about the Messiah. He, he also assumed he knew himself, which doesn't leave God a whole lot of options. Some friends of Flannery O'Connor once gave her a reproduction of a painting of Paul. She wrote this thank you note. Thanks for St. Paul. I reckon the Lord knew the only way to make a Christian out of that one was to knock him off his horse. That's what God has to do with people like us who know so much. So Saul, who's cheerfully plotting murder against believers in Christ, finds himself to be having what many consider to be the most famous conversion in all of church history. See, what Saul doesn't yet realize is that that road to Damascus, a road he may have traveled hundreds of times, has changed. Now this road is inhabited by the wild, free spirit of God. Saul, who up to this moment has been the pursuer, is now being pursued. There he is, marching to Damascus on a mission he is certain is from God, when something comes along and knocks him in the dust. He later describes it to people as, as a light flashing around him that makes him fall to the ground. And then he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you hurting me? Can you imagine? Who are you, he said, who is this? I'm Jesus, says the voice, whom you are persecuting. And so now this little man, face down in the dirt, hears himself say, ah, oh, I was so wrong. I knew everything about God's Messiah, but the Messiah came and I didn't recognize him. I knew the Bible from cover to cover, but I haven't known what it means. I know every rule in the book, but I don't even know my own heart. I know these Christians are nothing but fools, but their Christ is alive and he's calling my name. You know, what, what, what Paul is sprawled in there isn't just the dirt, but also the shattered fragments of all his assumptions. What Paul loses in that watershed moment is his ironclad certainty about, oh, so many things. Get up, says the voice. Get up and go to the city and wait until you're told what to do. Paul is not accustomed to being told what to do. But eventually he picks himself up. And he gets back on the road and he discovers that he is blind. 
and he stretches out his hand, has to be led like a toddler to the place where some person of God's choosing will tell him what to do. You know, many of us know the words by heart. I once was blind, but now I see. Lots of people in the world and many of us in this room know something about that. Lots of us could stand this morning and and testify about how Christ opened our eyes and helped us to see as if for the first time. But you know what? Sometimes an encounter with the living Christ gives us a different song to sing. A song that goes like this. I once could see everything so clear, but Christ blinded me for a time to all I thought I knew. Both are gifts of amazing grace. And the gift of blindness in particular may have the effect of leading us like a child to the place where all we can say is, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know the way. Show me, help me, lead me, save me. So following Christ means losing something. It means losing what you thought you knew about yourself, the world, about God. Becoming Christian may mean losing a lot of things that we've counted on and climbed on and clung to. Because Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, if you're ever going to find your life, you really, really do have to lose it. Well, much to his relief, Paul's eyes are opened in a few days. And when they are, he sees the world as if for the first time. And we're going to talk next Sunday about how his eyes were opened and what he found when they were. The story is to be continued. Even so, I think Paul, for the rest of his life, will know himself as someone whose sight was taken away. Someone who was blinded for a time and is eternally grateful. And, wouldn't you know it, someone who wound up not afraid to laugh at himself sometimes. I am a fool for Christ. He never would have said that before. I am a fool for Christ, he told that proud Corinthian congregation. And and he wrote them these profound words. He said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Those who claim to know something don't really know as much as they suppose. And probably the greatest words he ever wrote later in that chapter, if I have all knowledge, but don't have love, I'm nothing. Because love is patient and kind, never arrogant, never boastful. And love doesn't keep score of wrongs, but rejoices in the right. Love never ends. Knowledge, on the other hand, will pass away. What we do see now, he said, we see dimly, so dimly. And what we know, we know only in part. There'll come a day when we'll see face to face, and then I'll know fully, even as I am now fully known. But only three things remain, he said, faith, hope, love. And the greatest of these is love. These are the words of a grateful man, grateful to have lost his sight. And we might do worse than to pray to be blinded today to all that we thought we knew, to all that we had, and to stretch out our hand 
and to be led like a child. And so God, shine the shattering light and let us lose everything that keeps us from seeing you and your way. And lead us like the grateful blind into more and more of yourself and your light through Jesus Christ in whose name we ask it. Amen.